0: Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Vaccine hope sparks the biggest rally for the Dow since June, with airline and travel stocks propelling the index to a record high after Pfizer and BioNTech say their COVID vaccine is 90% effective. The Nasdaq sinks, however, weighed down by big tech and stay-at-home stocks, falling on the news and creating the widest trading range with other major markets since the dot-com bubble.
1: President-elect Joe Biden loves the vaccine development, but calls on the public to follow COVID-19 restrictions to combat the spread of the pandemic.
2: It's clear that this vaccine, even
0: if approved, will not be widely available for many months yet to come. The challenge before us right now is still immense and growing.
1: And U.S. Attorney General William Barr instructs prosecutors to investigate substantial allegations of voting irregularities as President Trump continues to question the legitimacy of the vote and refuses to concede.
0: And some of the world's biggest money managers tell CNBC a Biden presidency will be a positive for markets, with the chairman of Standard Life, Aberdeen, telling this channel the president-elect's multilateral methods will lower risk and build resilience.
2: Everything we hear about this history is around uh, reaching consensus and, and trying to find areas of agreement rather than areas of difference. And I think the world desperately needs that kind of approach at the moment. So I think it will be positive to risk mitigation, yes.
0: good morning everybody very good morning juliana good morning and what a terrific morning we've woken up this morning and it feels like everything has changed or has it and now that's the fascinating story that we're going to have to tease out i think over the next three hours here from an investor perspective and from a market perspective how much difference does this vaccine breakthrough now make so we had the biggest rally for the dow and the s&p since june pfizer and biontech sent markets soaring on the news that their vaccine candidate was more than 90% effective in preventing covid-19 the study found immunization was achieved 28 days after the first dose of the two-dose vaccine the two companies now plan to submit the vaccine to the fda for emergency authorization, after accumulating two months of data, which will be available from the third week of November. Well, speaking to CNBC in a First On interview, Pfizer CEO Albert Buller outlined how he expects the pharma giant to ramp up production of the vaccine in the year ahead. I believe uh, we should be able to have up to 50 million this year, 1.3 billion next year. Uh, This will be coming gradually, in the beginning a little bit less, then uh, the first quarter more, the second quarter more, and then we have a significant ramp-up in the second half uh, of uh, the year to deliver the 1.3 billion. But uh, given how effective this uh, vaccine is, and we are uh, aware that uh, the demand will be much higher than anything we can produce, we are also looking right now to see if uh, there are other ways, thinking out of the box, that we increase even further. The manufacturing capacity. Now we're speaking about 1,000 people dying in the US every day, right? So uh, there's no time to be lost here. Well, if this is the big breakthrough, then timing-wise it couldn't have come any better for President-elect Joe Biden. He welcomed the news, but he warned of an impending surge surge of cases in the near term. There's a need for bold action to fight this pandemic. We're still facing a very dark winter. There are now nearly 10 million COVID cases in the United States. Last week, we topped 120,000 new cases on multiple successive days. Infection rates are going up.
3: Hospitalizations are going up. Deaths are going up.
1: Well, this was, uh, no doubt about it, a groundbreaking development yesterday. And what really got investors excited was this efficacy number. 90% was significantly higher than anyone had expected. We were looking for more in the range of 60 to 70%. The Pfizer CEO himself allotting the achievement of 90% efficacy. So this is really game-changing. It has also raised expectations of some of the other vaccines in development working, given that a lot of them target the same protein this Pfizer vaccine uh, targets. So a lot of hope in the market, and we could be looking at a vaccine uh, as early as December. Now, looking at the market reaction, yesterday the Dow Jones ended 834 points higher. At one point yesterday, the Dow, however, was up more than 1,600 points. So we closed off the absolute highs of the day, but still very strong performance. The S&P 500 up 1.2%, and the NASDAQ closing lower by 1. percent 5%. Uh, let's take a look at the comparison between these three indices because it's really striking the performance we saw yesterday, the divergence between the S&P 500 and the Dow and the NASDAQ. What has been the key driver of the gains we've seen throughout the last month has really been U.S. tech and those stay-at-home stocks which have benefited from the pandemic trade. Yesterday, all of that change with the Nasdaq underperforming by a wide margin throughout the day. The S&P, for example, was tracking its biggest outperformance versus the Nasdaq since October 2008. The Dow tracking its largest single day outperformance since 2002 versus the Nasdaq. So massive change in the types of stocks that investors want to hold. We will see now moving forward and discuss throughout the program whether this is the beginning of a lasting change and a major rotation out of these tech winners into the value parts of the market. Is this enough of a catalyst?
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it, how the big houses have immediately come out and seized upon the news of the vaccine and started to be a whole lot more bullish. JP Morgan, if you if you want to find the story by the way, CNBC Pro has all the information on these uh, particular banks, but JP Morgan came out straight out of the gates completely ripped up, I think, their more cautious forecasts and suggested that they're going to get to their S&P targets a whole lot more quickly. The other interesting story, I think, here is just the phasing, because inevitably you got the big knee-jerk reaction here. We suddenly found out that value and cyclicals, they're not dead. They've just been sleeping, and they've been reawakened by this vaccine news. But the phasing is going to be very important here, and this is where I'm going to lean on your expertise in the programme this morning because you can't really believe that there is a, a real opportunity here for a switch in the performance of these different classes of shares until we have confirmation that we've gone through the various hurdles necessary to start distributing this. Then there's the issue of the scale of the challenge in the distribution and then there's ultimately some way down the road maybe in the spring of next year or possibly even in the autumn that point where we begin to make the case that actually there is sufficient immunity in the community that actually we don't need to worry about this as an issue a whole lot longer but let's face it that move yesterday was discounting a whole lot of really good news Mm for these stocks. And the question is, can we actually see all of that fall into place over the next 18 months?
1: Absolutely. And to Joe Biden, President-elect's point about the rising case numbers, what will investors do with that data over the coming months? Because this vaccine is not going to be widely available, even in a best case scenario, until mid-2021. We're only looking at 50 million doses this year and 1.3 billion doses next year. It's a two-dose vaccine. But will investors consider that data back? looking given we now have a vaccine light at the end of the tunnel. One well, of
0: the- Joe Biden, very interesting, wasn't it? Dark winter. Joe Biden's obviously learned something from uh, President Trump's technique of encapsulating an idea in a very short phrase or sentence. And dark winter, I suggest, will now become the phrase that we hear a lot of as opposed to winter is coming mm-hmm. as we watch the development of the infection rate over the next three to six months. But you will have seen, like I have, some encouraging data points here in the UK and in other European economies on the level of rising infections. Actually, some of those numbers suggest that maybe we're topping out in some countries.
1: And it will uh, be very encouraging to see that these new measures in the United Kingdom and around Europe, whether they actually do control the spread of the virus. And to your point, it looks like they are having an impact. Let's take a little bit of a closer look at some of the big moves we saw yesterday. Perhaps this trade, this transition is best encapsulated by the moves we saw in Zoom and United Airlines. The cross here, the outperformance of United Airlines versus Zoom. And a lot will look at this share price of Zoom with some affection, given Zoom became such a big part of our lives, along with many of the other video platforms throughout lockdown. And now yesterday, we We saw Zoom shares come off 9%, closing off the absolute lows of the day, Um, but very, very swift move into these uh, reopening trades, and United Airlines being a very clear winner there, up 22%. Uh, let's take a look at tech more broadly and the moves we saw yesterday. Here beside me, you've got to look at some of the major tech names. Uh, falling out of fashion yesterday, Facebook shares down 5%. Netflix, which was one of the most loved stay-at-home stocks, taking a near 9% hit. Microsoft down by 2.4%. Amazon taking a 5% hit. In contrast, looking at the travel sector, we see green across the board. And not just a little bit of green, massive moves moves higher. Delta, 17% higher. United Airlines, there's a closer look, up 19%. American Airlines, up 15%. Carnival, uh, the cruise line company, up nearly 40%. Royal Caribbean, another cruise liner, up 30%. So people really taking a view that these travel stocks may be, uh, may be coming back and travel may be coming back significantly faster than had been priced in, and a lot of this, again, comes down to that 90% efficacy rate. And we'll get into that in a bit more detail shortly. Finally, let's take a look at banks, how they performed very strong gains for the U.S. banking sector. That has come alongside a rise in U.S. Treasury yields, which is obviously a very beneficial for banks and the profitability outlook for the banking sector. So massive rally for the banks alongside travel at the expense of some of the most loved sectors this year in the tech sector.
0: Yeah. One big question I think everybody needs to ask themselves, though, as they rush out and they stock up on these unloved companies, what do the central banks now think about the need to add further stimulus to the global economy? Do they now pause because they consider the prospect of a vaccine coming, an opportunity for consumer demand to re-emerge here. And if that's the case, to what extent do you need to temper your enthusiasm at this point? Because we know this liquidity created by the central banks has done a lot of the running. Anyhow, we've got a lot to talk about this morning. Let's spend some some of our time here focusing on the reaction around the vaccine announcement. Clearly, we've uh, seen a major market. Impact uh, UBS Asset Management President uh, Sunny Harford uh, says there is now a shift in the investment focus.
3: We went into the week thinking that we were going to be talking about the, the new president-elect in the United States, and and of course have been pleasantly surprised by the vaccine news coming out of Pfizer. But you know, looking ahead, I think 2021 was going to be a pivotal year. It was a question of how long would we end up. Um, In lockdowns, it was focused on the devastating spike in COVID cases that we're seeing really around the globe. Um, And it was a question of whether, you know, the fiscal need in the United States, the policy changes with a new president coming on board would be delayed and how long it would take, et cetera. So so this changes everything. I think um, long-term the markets had been up, um, some challenging how high the markets had gone with COVID still looming, but the market had adopted a two- or three-year-out perspective. The vaccine and this good news now and the ability to see it actually being rolled out into 2021, I think accelerates all of that and puts 2021 in a very different light and a more positive one.
1: Tara Ravandran, the head of life sciences research at Shore Capital joins us now to discuss this vaccine breakthrough in more detail. Tara, great to have you on the program. The, the, the big news yesterday that seems to have really sent this shockwave through markets is this 90% efficacy number. This was much higher than anybody had expected. The company themselves saying that this was a best-case scenario. Just explain to us why this 90% efficacy number matters so much. Hi, morning. Um-
4: So, yes, so clearly a significant positive, um, and I guess, you know, really a testament to what can be achieved by, um, you know, by science with an unprecedented effort in terms of coordination and speed. In terms of the data, the 90% efficacy in reduction of symptomatic disease versus placebo is much better than uh, the market. And as you say, even the company was expecting, um, you know, we were expecting something closer to 60 to 70% efficacy based on the design of the clinical trial. And this compares to uh, typical seasonal flu vaccine efficacy of uh, you know 40 to 60 percent in any given year and relative to the FDA bar of at least 50 percent effective so what does the data actually mean well actually you know it's only headline data and so this means leaves a lot of questions that remain to be answered but we know that There is a good chance of the reduction of symptomatic disease, and that's one of the the questions that I would ask. So four questions that I would ask around this data are, you know, what is the efficacy by subgroup? Um, So in those patients that are in those uh, participants that were more at risk, so the elderly or those with underlying comorbidities, um, clearly that's key in terms of how we're looking to roll out this vaccine. Um, in due course. The second point: uh, How effective is this vaccine in reducing severe disease? So, if you remember, Pfizer has had one of the more lenient primary endpoints. There, we're looking for at least one symptom to count as an attack. Um, and there were mild to moderate symptoms. Uh, Some of the other um, vaccine companies like Moderna were looking for at least two mild to moderate symptoms as well as one severe symptom, so a higher hurdle. Um, The third thing would be around the duration of effect. So how long does the protection actually last? Um, And finally, safety and state, there's been no issues raised with the safety of the mRNA vaccines, but clearly we have to to wait a little bit longer to see this, this data play out.
0: Tara, let's let's assume that this is um, the, the, the magic bullet, that this is the silver bullet and that the data looks fantastic. And then we get to a point where we uh, need to distribute, deploy and supply and scale. Um, there are some issues around the temperature at which this vaccine needs to be stored, which makes that slightly more complicated. In terms of understanding the phasing of deployment, how far out will this be? What are we looking at? The spring? the summer, the autumn of 21.
4: Yeah, so there's two parts to considering that. The first, is to say, is the logistics of actually supplying disease. So um, the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine is an mRNA va- vaccine. mRNA is typically quite unstable, so it has to be stored at super cool temperatures or minus 70 degrees Celsius, which requires the use of um, uh, dry ice uh, in specialized shipping containers. Um, so Pfizer are managing this distribution themselves. Um, once they get the vaccines uh, to where they need to be administered, they can then be thawed and stored in the fridge for um, up to anything up to five days, is, is what the company has said. Uh, this suggests that in the first um, in the first instance, deployment will be in uh, high volume centres like vaccine clinics or hospitals, um, and this will also dictate the strategy about who gets the vaccine first. Um, and, and one can imagine uh, we've seen. Um, differing strategies between national authorities. This will be decided by um, by, by uh, health regulators. But you know, it's it's the at-risk patient groups, as I mentioned before, so those with uh, you know, healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, and and also um, the elderly who are more likely to get severe disease than others. Uh, in terms of, so the second part of that is actually supply. How much how much vaccine can actually be produced? Um, to be distributed. And we know that um, Pfizer said they can produce enough vaccine to vaccinate uh, 25 million people by the end of 2020 and scaling that up to be 1.3 billion doses. So half of that because it's a two dose vaccine in 2021. Uh, So we're really looking at, you know, uh, mid-year before we can consider any sort of um, large scale rollout of, of vaccination.
1: Tara, many of the vaccines that are in development target the same protein on the virus that this Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine target. We're expecting data from Moderna any week now. We're expecting data from AstraZeneca, which uses a different approach before the end of the year. Does this data from Pfizer-BioNTech change your expectations around these other vaccines? Is this more promising for the other vaccines in development? Yeah, so it's a great
4: question. I think the fact that all these vaccines as you said target the same antigen on the virus of so the spike protein um, suggests that we are targeting um, a marker on the virus that, that elicits an immune response that is clinically relevant so that's clearly a positive. Ninety percent efficacy is a very high bar. Um, we didn't that, that really is a best case scenario so it does raise the bar in terms of where the other vaccines have to reach. In the early data um, there was l- you know, relatively limited differentiation in terms of efficacy. I suppose the, the mRNA vaccines were somewhere in the middle. I think you know, AstraZeneca was always seen as as being effective, perhaps. But- but in terms of the level of immune response that was being elicited, it was slightly less than what we were seeing with the mRNA vaccines. The protein subunit vaccines, which are coming a little bit later, so things that are the, the type of vaccine that's been developed by uh, Novavax or GSK Sanofi, those are more traditional in terms of the modality um, and, and produced really some much much more compelling data in, in, um, in the preclinical stages. So we will have to see, but it, it does bode well for the vaccines uh, more broadly as a group, but 90 percent is
1: a high bar. Tara, really appreciate you joining us and sharing your expertise with us this morning. Tara Ravendran, the head of life sciences research at Shore Capital. I just want to flag for you a data point just crossing the wires now. The U.S. has reported 133,819 COVID-19 cases yesterday. That sets a new record for daily cases, passing the 130,000 mark for the first time. So just a reminder that this pandemic is very real and very active.
4: Still,
0: U.S. Attorney General William Barr has instructed prosecutors to probe, quote, substantial allegations of voting irregularities. But in a memo to Justice Department lawyers, Barr said, quote, far-fetched claims should not be a basis for the inquiries. This as President Trump continues to refuse to concede the election after casting doubt on its legitimacy. President-elect Biden's camp is considering legal action against the General Services Administration for its delay in recognizing the results of the election. The federal agency traditionally acknowledges the incoming president once voting results are clear. The GSA's refusal to confirm a victory means Biden's team must wait to access uh, key federal agencies and funds normally available to a presidential transition team. Well, speaking from the UBS European Conference senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, Neil Ferguson told CNBC the election showed the centre to be a remarkably resilient place in American politics, despite the divisions
2: in the country. This is exactly where we were four years ago when a great many Democrats refused to believe uh, that it was a legitimate uh, result. And they spent years trying to show that somehow Vladimir Putin was responsible for Donald Trump's election as opposed to American voters. So uh, this is uh, not exactly new news. I think the truth is that uh, we have a slight tendency uh, in the media to exaggerate the bitterness of polarization in American politics. The truth is, in my view, that this election showed the center to be a remarkably resilient place in American politics. Joe Biden himself is the quintessential uh, centrist. Many people, I think, voted uh, in the hope of normalcy. uh, And there was considerable rejection of the radical ideas of the left of the Democratic Party. I think the left of the Democratic Party has a key role to play from now on because I think if they adopt an unforgiving and even vengeful tone, uh, then I think they will do great damage and alienate a great many people. Joe Biden struck the right note over the weekend by calling for a time of healing. And I actually found his uh, his victory speech uh, compelling and uh, and reassuring, frankly, that he understands the extraordinary importance uh, of lowering the temperature of American politics and, and getting people to recognize that while there may be differences in a whole range of, of policy issues, uh, ultimately, we have a common uh, a common fate as as Americans. So, I, I, you know, I look back on this uh, whole period of of debate going back four years. There have been repeated warnings that the republic was in danger, that we were Weimar America, or that there was even going to be a second civil war. I have to say it doesn't feel that way. Uh, Today, I never believed those alarmist calls. I think what we found today, uh, or have found in the last uh, week, is that American institutions still work as designed. Uh, This hasn't delivered a massive repudiation uh, of Republican ideas at all. Uh, It's delivered victory to a centrist candidate, but not a sweeping victory, Uh, not unless they win two seats in the runoffs in, in January in Georgia, not the Senate. Uh, so I think the centre has held, and those people who wrote hysterical articles predicting uh, a kind of coup d'etat should all, you know, go and take a chill pill and lie down in a darkened room.
1: Well, one of the more optimistic commentators out there, I would say, that's also being reflected in financial markets. We're a business channel, so we watch financial markets very closely, and uh, markets have been performing really well. One of the uh, reasons cited is that a split Congress is actually a positive outcome for uh, financial markets because uh there's a balancing side on both sides the, the, you know the progressives can't push forward their agenda to the full uh, and equally uh, there will be room for some bipartisan projects to come out of this congress so once uh, uh biden comes in there beginning of january do you think that a split congress is also perhaps a more positive outcome for the country as a whole than this blue sweep that people had been anticipating
2: well, market narratives change uh, with amazing speed. It's only a few weeks ago that we were being told that, it, in fact, a, a democratic sweep, a blue wave would be terrific because there would be enormous fiscal support for the economy. And we were all Keynesians looking forward to uh, to that outcome. Uh, uh, and that has been ditched in favor of the narrative that, no, actually, it was better this way. And having divided government, will will check the more radical plans uh, of the democratic left, I mean, one of these stories can't be can't be right. Uh, part of what's buoying up markets, of course, is the good news about about a vaccine for COVID nineteen. So this isn't just a, a political story, but the the rally was already there. I you know I never really believed the blue wave is awesome thesis. I think my view was that if if we had had a blue wave, if the Democrats had really swept and it had been a landslide, markets would have actually been very nervous and would have had second thoughts about uh, what that implied because it would have implied some. pretty Radical policies, quite possibly, and certainly some significant tax increases, not least in the kind of people who tend to uh, be the big players in Wall Street. That that now seems much less likely, and I find this this narrative actually somewhat more plausible than the uh, than the blue wave narrative of a few weeks ago. Uh, well, Steve also spoke to the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman
0: and asked him about the relevance of President Trump in setting the political narrative.
5: Trump will be. Uh... Uh, looming over uh, his party and the U.S. political scene. Now, you know, we, we don't. Uh, no, no president in the United States has ever been uh, uh, less transparent about his personal finances. Uh, but it appears quite likely that Trump um, is uh, will will be bankrupt. Uh, I mean, this is let's, let's be blunt about this: that he, um, his, he's been getting a revenue stream in part because people have been funneling money to his uh, businesses, uh, and uh, some of that revenue stream will dry up. Um, and he has some large amount, at least 400 million, and probably considerably more in debts. And creditors may not be willing to be so forbearing. So. Uh, Does a Donald Trump who is forced into bankruptcy carry the same weight uh, or can he do something? Can he create a media empire that that keeps him afloat? And so there's him personally, I think, is is very there can be some really wild things going on with with regard to Trump, the person Uh, Trumpism, the movement um, is durable. Uh, it turns out that it taps into some uh, deep-seated resentments, uh, and uh, and I think that we one thing we did learn from the election is that it's not, although race uh, is, is a big part of that, uh, there's a substantial number of, uh, of of Hispanic voters and even Black voters. Uh, supported Trump. So he was tying it to some kind of deep resentments. Um, and it's not the United States alone. I mean, we're seeing some somewhat similar forces are present all across the the Western world. Uh, we've seen you know, one, Hungary is uh, still a democracy on paper, but it's a one-party authoritarian state in practice. Poland is teetering on the edge of that. There are similar movements uh, with substantial power in the rest of, of Western Europe. So uh, we have to say that the, uh, uh, the President-elect, I think I can say that, President-elect Biden um, has you know, spent a lot of time in the campaign saying, this is not who we are. But what I think we just found out is actually kind of it is who we are or who a lot of us are. And that's, that's mm-hmm. ominous for the future.
2: So what can Vice President-elect, as you frame him, and of course there's a lot of challenges still to go, what can Vice President-elect Joe Biden do to frame or change the global economic direction? There was no blue wave, so economic policies will have to work uh, with a Republican Senate as well. Will there be any changes to the global tensions that were created under Donald Trump? Uh, Will there be any change, for instance, in that trans-Pacific relationship?
5: Yes. Um, interestingly, um, the the thing that has probably most concerned uh, people outside the United States, certainly uh, in, in, in Asia and elsewhere, about Trump's policies have been the parts that uh, depended least upon congressional action. Uh, the U.S. trade policy, it, it's a I can go into the history of it, but basically for what have historically been very good reasons, uh, the tariff setting uh, is very much at the discretion of the president. Uh, None of the things that Trump has done, none of his trade war actions against China, uh, required legislation. Um, And therefore, uh, a President Biden will be in a position to follow extremely different policies and i would also add by the way that that the u.s protectionist push did not have a deep-seated constituency Uh, there were a lot of workers demanding yes a lot of white working class supporting trump uh not much evidence that they that actually trade policy was at the front of their demands and business of course by and large, hated this. So uh, Biden will be in a position to substantially change that.
0: Uh, fascinating comments. I think it's always interesting to hear from uh, Paul Krugman. Um, I, I, you know, the the fact that Trump is likely to be around then for some time, um, I, I, I find extraordinary. I know Axios is running a mm. is it Axiom? Yes. Oh, uh, running a piece this morning suggesting that he may run for the election again in four years' time.
1: Well, the, the takeaway from that article, in my view, uh, suggesting that he's looking at a run in 2024, suggests he may be closer to conceding. Of course, if he wasn't, then that would become an impossible um, development. So could we hear from President Trump? So far, the, uh, the, the the narrative seems to be that he is far from conceding. But if he is considering seriously a run in four years' time, then it would suggest that he, he is at least considering uh, conceding at this point. Um, I thought also interesting comments from Neil uh, Ferguson speaking to Jamana yesterday about um, Joe Biden and where he stands as a centrist and that being a huge part of why he uh, came to victory. Uh, The um, assumption being that if another member of the Democratic Party ran, it would have been a, a landslide for President Trump.
0: Uh, we better talk about Adidas. The numbers are just trickling through here, so let's have a look. The um, the, the business, um, I think prior to yesterday's trade, we were down about 5% year-to-date in terms of the... Uh, the trade in the stocks, um, which is not bad, but of course they they benefited from the e-commerce uh, channel to the market, and they say e-commerce sales up fifty one percent with a strong increase in uh, the full price share. So not a lot of uh, discounting. The uh, group reporting a strong recovery in the third quarter, with uh, top and bottom line results close to the prior. Year level, an operating profit in at seven hundred and ninety four million, resulting uh, in a return to the double digit operating margin, that operating margin coming in at 50 percent, despite what they describe as headwinds from adverse FX and promotional activities. So obviously they've uh, had to up their uh, promotional activities uh, as a result of the uh, pandemic. Sequential operating profit improvement of more than 1.1 billion versus the last quarter. The company's top line uh, predicted to develop similarly in the fourth quarter as it did in the third quarter, implying a low to mid-single-digit currency-neutral revenue decline. The group says despite the strong comparison base in Greater China, Adidas expects its business in this market to return to growth in the fourth quarter. Also guidance on gross margin pretty much similar to the prior level uh, for the fourth quarter.